Welcome to Property Science. I'm Matt. This is Andy. Hello, hello. We're indoors. We're wired up to Skype. This is a very special episode. And should we start with an apology? Because we've lost an episode. Wait, I thought we weren't admitting that. Okay. Yeah, Are we going to admit guess... that? I think we should because we All were right. a week late. Yeah, yeah. We lost an episode last week that was, it was a good one. Just when we thought so we had all the text sorted out, turns out we don't. <laughs> But uh, we will get the guests we recorded with back on again soon, so not to worry. But thanks for uh, putting up with a week of no show. I'm sorry about that. It went wrong. Those things happen. But luckily this week, to make up for that, we have a guest we've been trying to get on for, I think it's been well over a year now. Yeah, because I think we were first going to try and get her on when she was writing Packing for Mars. Oh, no, that was 2010. But, um, well, I had read that around when we interviewed uh, Chris Hadfield, the commander of the ISS. and That's I think- right. Yeah, she's written a number of great popular science books. Uh, Mary Roach is going to be our guest today. She'll yeah, be Skyping in with phenomenal us. Phenomenal writer. Just a few minutes. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read her books or seen. She's done TED Talks and. She's just, written Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void, um, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, and then coming out next month, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, which is what we'll be discussing with her. And yeah, they're all sort of, they all tackle different elements of science, but from a sort of human interest angle, uh, they sort of chronicle her investigations, her journey through the thing, and I think we might actually be pretty much ready to go. I think that was just Mary right now yep. messaging on Skype, so we're going to be talking... Uh, I think mostly about Grunt, which is her new book, which I just read, and it's fantastic. But maybe we'll see where else we end up. But this will be Mary Roach. Hello. Hey, Mary. How's it going? Good. Thank How you. How are you, Andy? Good. Uh, this is actually Matt. Uh, this this oh. is this is Andy. Uh, I'm the British one. Andy's the one who's... But I'm the normal one. What, yeah, whatever the opposite of British is, he's yeah. the other one. He's the other one. Okay, cool. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. So we just we got your new book. We got a uh, grunt to read. It's fantastic. Yay! So, so firstly, congratulations and thanks for that. You're investigating grunt for for our listeners who don't know. We talked about this a little bit, but it's it's subtitled "The Curious Science of Humans at War," and it's all about the sort of the equipment and the scientific research and everything, and the people who are developing things for the military. So that's going to be a crazy hassle to. Like anything military, just to even get close to talking to them has to be a nightmare, right? Um, you would think so, and I had anticipated that, particularly because uh, one of my previous books I dealt with NASA, and it was a little bit trying sometimes. But the, 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 the folks at the military were actually fairly helpful. The public affairs people, when you contacted them, um, off, often it was just a matter of tr- trying to figure out who's the person that can kind of say yes? Like nobody was saying no, but nobody knew who had to say yes. So okay. sometimes it was, it was just, I don't know, is it AFRICOM? Is it CENTCOM? Is it the Pentagon? Who can like sign off on this? So that would be kind of a lot of just emails pinging around, dozens and dozens of people going, is this in your swim lane? Can you sign off on this? Oh, I can't sign off. I don't know, fine by me. So that kind of thing took up, a fair amount of time, but but people were actually quite surprisingly open to my talking about this stuff because you know bear in mind it's it's a good story to tell. It's people who are working on 
You know, how do you deal with the number of people dying of heat stroke in the Middle East or um, hearing problems, extremely loud noise? I mean, they're, they're, it, it's, it's kind of the, the white hat military science as opposed right. to who are uh, developing better, bigger bombs, weapons and things like that. Yeah, I should have really stressed that but in, in the introduction, but it is all... Um... Yeah, you're not. You don't really talk about the latest in weaponry at all. It's it's all about how to stop people from dying in wars for the most part, and how to keep them healthier. And like, I hadn't even realized. I hadn't realized how impossible it was to hear anything in combat. I, of course, it kind of makes sense, but I didn't realize people like the Marines when they're going into somewhere are practically deaf. Yeah, it's it's this. Yeah, you know, it's easy enough to protect one's hearings, you can do, you know, earplugs and then put something over it. And yeah, that's great. You can cut down the decibel level a lot, but then the Marine or the soldier can't hear, doesn't have any situational awareness, can't hear someone yelling to get down, can't hear the things that they need to hear. So these guys tend to not wear their earplugs or whatever passive hearing protection they have. So, you know, it's this conundrum of, yeah, I'd like to protect my hearing, but I also kind of want to stay alive. Right, oh right. god soldiers are so picky <laughs> so like so needy yeah. uh, wanna not be deaf wanna not die god pick a lane choose <laughs> choose what um so yeah that that you one of the things you were talking about was then the sort of advanced filtering earplug hearing aid devices that can let you hear yeah uh t-caps uh uh, now you're going to make me say it's tactical. <laughs> you know, T-caps. Uh, yeah, uh, it's in the book. <laughs> yeah, that was something I got from the book was practically everything in the military has an acronym, but it's always said out loud. Yeah, that's right. And some of them you pronounce the whole word and others you pronounce part like T-caps. You don't go to caps and it's not T-C-A-P-S, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, but that's a it's a, it builds it, communications are built into the head, the, the things that are protecting your hearing. And there's also there's a. Um, it, it's it, it's it's doing something very cool. It is amplifying the quiet sounds and uh, cutting out the super loud ones. So it's sort of a, a smart uh, set of headset. You know, the kind of thing that you see somebody on a tarmac who's waving a plane in. They're wearing that kind of heavy, like that kind of ear cuff. Right. But there's components built in that are sensing. You know, is this a loud noise or a quiet noise? Do we dampen it or do we amplify it? Uh, and it's also got uh, enabling you to speak uh, wirelessly with other. You know, it's got a mouthpiece, so you're communicating and talking to other people in the unit, or someone overhead in a helicopter, or someone far away, either uh, in the Pentagon. You know, conceivably, it's it's so it's a right. it's a pretty sophisticated device right now. It's mostly special operations that have it, but there then there are folks that are trying to get it uh, more uh, widely available to. Um, service members but then that comes back to again there's a there's a huge amount of the book on just on heat because obviously again i hadn't realized but these people are firstly were most of the wars now are in incredibly hot situations but also the more protective gear you have the more likely you are just to die from wearing too much stuff yeah yeah you've got first of all it's it maybe over a hundred fahrenheit it's it's really hot and you're wearing body armor, which is heavy and hot. Uh, plus you've got this heavy load. So you're uh, going to, you're going to be at risk for heat injury because what's going on in, in order to cool yourself, you need to sweat. And when you sweat, your body needs to use 
plasma, the, the clear portion of blood. So uh, all this, uh, the heat get, is getting offloaded through sweat. But meanwhile, if you're working hard, your muscles need some of the, the need the oxygen that blood is carrying. So this competition goes on for for blood. So you know, you got to be able to sweat. You've also got to be able to keep your muscles going and moving. Uh, so uh, when and when this competition gets too intense, you start to see heat injury, which could be just as you know as minor as fainting and as severe as heat stroke, which can kill you pretty effectively. Yeah, I didn't even know really what heat stroke, I knew of heat stroke, I didn't really know what heat stroke was, I just knew that's like the one thing, like one level worse than heat exhaustion, but it's a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it, you know, there's, there's a disagreement on exactly what happens, but, but basically it's that competition for the resources, the, the blood and the oxygen and the plasma and the one thing you don't you don't need digestion at a time like that, so your body kind of sh- shuts down. Say the, the gut, the, the blood it, it doesn't service the gut with blood. Uh, and if and if it does this long enough, you can start to get breakdown in the gut and things leaking out and a kind of an inflammatory response. Uh, it, it's not really you're you're not physically cooking the brain, which is what some people say. It seems like it's a it's more of a systemic response. Um, you know, there is one thing that experts agree on, which is bad crap starts to happen fast, and you can go into a coma and you can uh, die. Uh, so, thank you also for putting it in terms that we can understand, because that's about the level of our show. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting you talk about uh, the, the gut because that, that seems to be a through line or just sort of the things that people usually shy away from with the human body is kind of a through line in, in all of your books. And you have a chapter in this dedicated to diarrhea and the implications of that. And you, you get into some really uh, some some grimy stuff in this. And then, uh, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Gut, guts are me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. The, there's a chapter on, on diarrhea, which... You know, the word diarrhea, it's kind of a silly, funny word. I mean, that, that I hear the word diarrhea, I, I, it kind of makes me want to laugh. But, it's uh, taking all it, of my professionalism it, it, right now not to, so. <laughs> diarrhea. Yeah, uh, now you got me. <laughs> diarrhea, diarrhea, diarrhea. It's good. It sounds good with a British accent. Can you say that for us? I can definitely say diarrhea. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to request? I'm good at this kind of thing. Yeah, vit- vitamin, could you say that? I, I can say Vitamin. Vitamin. I love that. You're very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Diarrhea. Diarrhea. Anyway, diarrhea. It's, uh, if you, you can imagine if you were, say, in special operations and you're over in some counterinsurgency mission in uh, Somalia or somewhere, and you're eating kind of off the economy, as they say, you're in a village and you're eating what the villagers eat. They may not have the best, safest water supply. The food may be not terribly hygienic. So these guys get diarrhea at a rate double what the average sort of non-special forces enlisted person. They they get hit a lot with pretty severe diarrhea. And you you know, it could be a matter of sort of national security. If you're the team, the small team that's going in, say, to take out Osama bin Laden, whatever your mission is, and you have crippling, sudden, extreme urgency, what do you do? I mean, it's it's not really a laughing matter for those guys. Um, uh, it's serious. And they, yeah, according and they, to your book, in some cases, they just go, right? They just... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I was in Djibouti at this um, Camp Lemonnier where a lot, of, a lot of the U.S. counterinsurgency missions uh, go out of, and I tracked it. I mean, I, was like, I wanted to have a conversation about this with the you know special operations guys, which you can imagine as a, a reporting assignment is a little awkward 
to approach some, one of these kind of virile, omnipotent, special operations, Navy SEAL type guys and say, I'd like to talk to you about diarrhea. Yeah. Uh, the accent for you. <laughs> but um, it's a hell of a trepidation about approaching one of these guys. And, there's only, and they have their own off in the secure zone. They're, you know, Everything's classified. They only come out to go to the chow hall to, to eat. Because right. So that was my one opportunity. So this is a situation where I've got to approach this guy who I've never met, who's really kind of scary looking, and sort of say, "Can we? You don't know me. Can we have a conversation about diarrhea?" Which, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's my normal opening gambit with people I don't know anyway. But <laughs> well, it gets their attention. Yeah. Uh, but... Yeah. So it was, but it was interesting because you know initially I came up and the, this very sweet public affairs guy was going to you know offer to introduce me. So we approached the guy. And the public affairs guy is going, hi, I'm Seamus with public affairs. And the guy doesn't even look up. He grabs his tray. I'm done. And the, I'm leaving. And then, and then I like jump in. I'm like, this is my only opportunity. I'm like, I, my name is Mary and I'm working on this book. And I know this and diarrhea is kind of a silly topic, I guess. But I, but I feel like, uh, uh, and he cuts me off. He, you know, he goes, it's not silly. And you're welcome to sit down. And he was really candid. And it, it, it's a... Uh, when it happens to you, it's, you know, whether or not it's, it's a, the mission is something where there's, you know, like, a, it's not, it doesn't have to be a, a taking down Osama bin Laden. It could be just, you're in a hole, you're in a sniper hide, you're, you know, you're nowhere near a toilet and um, you're on your own and you're don't have a change of pants. I mean, or it's, I mean, it's a, so it can be, it can be just incredibly, uh, hard and depressing, or it could be a matter of national security. But whatever it is, it happens all the time. And so I was traveling there with a, a, a Navy diarrhea researcher, Captain Riddle, who was working on a, a, a better treatment regimen, you know, a single dose of this um, drug that would clear it up more quickly and also uh, lower the uh, likelihood of uh, developing resist, you know, resistant strains of bacteria. So anyway, it was... Yeah, you were saying uh, in the book that... Um there's this completely mistaken belief that in fact that a lot of the soldiers even have that you shouldn't stop diarrhea because it's good to get everything out your system and they don't know that no you could take this pill and have like three days less of shitting yourself yeah yeah there's this widespread belief that uh what your body is your body's response is to flush out the toxins but it's not something your body is doing to the bacteria it's something the bacteria are doing to your body they're interrupting your ability to absorb water in the gut, and which is a lot of what happens in the large intestine. You're absorbing water. Uh, and if you don't, then that water's got to just come out the back passage, as they say. So um, the back, and they're all, diff all different kinds of ways that different bacteria do this, but it is, it's something they're doing to you. So the whole toxin and flushing toxins is, is not what's going on. But a lot of the, the, these guys, when I, when we would sit down in the dining hall and have conversations about diarrhea, which people kind of didn't appreciate all the time. Over lunch. <laughs> they, they, they'd be like, oh, no, no, you don't want to enter. You don't want to fool with nature. You got to let that run its course. Um, but in fact, no, you don't. And it's, it's, is it true that it's an evolutionary mechanism that the bacteria is using to try to get you to sort of splatter it everywhere? And, and come yeah, that's because, yeah, because I said to, to, doc, to Captain Riddle, uh, what, well, but why? Why does why does the bacteria want to do this to you? He said it's it's about spreading itself in large numbers. It's, uh, it's uh, you know just if you've got if you can make an organism if shit copiously and in a liquid form, 
Check your cover the world. You right. know, you're spreading it's like, like a dandelion off. clock, <laughs> like a much worse what? dandelion clock. Um, yeah. <laughs> if, we, if we move away from the slightly sort of snickery oh, come uh, on. and maybe unserious topic of diarrhea to the, to the more serious and in no way jokey topic of penis transplants, because yeah. uh, this came up um, actually on our podcast recently. There's just been the America's first successful penis transplant. It was yes. in the news and everything, and I was already... F- fairly familiar with the concept because there's a whole chapter in your book on on genital surgery because again that's a sort of that was a previously neglected branch of medicine because it's not a limb it's not a an obvious thing that needs to be replaced right and it's also a lot higher up so uh used to be you step on a mine you you know you're going to usually the lower half of the leg is what's going to be impacted and damaged and possibly amputated but it's a you know with the with the uh, ieds getting bigger and also medivacs getting faster and, and and the the combat trauma surgery getting better people are surviving more so you've got the bigger explosions which are causing injury higher up and you've also got more people surviving to need this kind of reconstruction or transplant like you said the first one uh just happened the first u.s uh, just happened uh, a week ago, i believe it was like last week Mm-hmm. I just coincidentally with the timing of my book, it was a different hospital. I mean, I was at Johns Hopkins. This the transplant actually happened at Mass General. I didn't realize they were apparently there was a a race going on for the first, <laughs> the first U.S. penis transplant. But you weren't afraid to get in there. You you observed some people doing practice um, transplants on cadavers, right? In my way, yes, I did. <laughs> um, yes, I was. I was at Johns Hopkins. When they were doing, it wasn't a full wet run, as they say, what they were doing the, the whole procedure. They were, um, they had two cadavers and they, they were doing a part of it and they were looking at uh, the vasculature and how, which arteries were important to transplant. So they were doing a sort of perfusing, they had a, they had a bag with a blue tinted liquid and then they would let that run into um, the cadaver and see you could see the blue come up and it was like a, a time lapse bruise appearing you know just above and to the right of the pubic bone and you, and so you would know okay this this artery is important because that's going to bring blood here and you want it because what happened with the first the first penis transplant was in China in 2006 and there was some necrosis there was some some tissue that wasn't getting oxygenated there wasn't blood flow they didn't they didn't uh, attach, reattach enough arteries, enough of the arteries. So, I mean, that's what they believe what happened. There hasn't been a lot of information from the Chinese surgeons. Uh, but anyway, so they were being very careful about making sure there was not going to be necrosis with the America, first American transplant. Mm-hmm. So I was, that's what I was watching. But they, were, but they did do a, you know, they took it up to the point where they would actually reattach the veins, arteries, and nerves. They didn't do that, run through that sort of a rough cut. Okay, and, so, and I thought it was interesting that the um, the technology to reduce problems with your immune system um, rejecting transplants is getting better, and they're doing these things, including marrow transplants, that get your body to get used to the or yeah. to, to not reject things as much. Exactly, yeah, marrow infusion. Marrow is infusion. Part, that's right. Yeah, yeah that, where you would take some of the because uh, the, the marrow has immune cells, you would take some of the immune cells from the donor and, and infuse them into the recipient. You're kind of reprogramming the immune agenda somewhat so the, the recipient's body is going to be more accepting of this 
new structure, which has a bunch of, you know, in the case of a penis, uh, a lot of different types of tissue. There's erectile tissue, there's skin, there's muscle, there, you know, there, there's, so that, the, and the, it's called a composite transplant. There's, just, there's a higher likelihood of rejection. And that's so, that's why hands and faces were the last to come along. You know, we've been transplanting livers and kidneys forever, but not forever, but for a while. So, um, and that's why. So the marrow infusion is one of the ways that um, now you don't need to give such heavy doses of immune suppressant drugs, which is great because those drugs leave you vulnerable to viruses and certain cancers, and they also have a lot of heavy side effects. Right, right, right. Which is what you're you, you're even saying that um, one of the other reasons they held off on things like hands for so long is they are non-life-threatening transplants. So why would you? Th- risk someone's future health with these suppressant drugs exactly. for a transplant that can when you can just use a prosthetic exactly yeah exactly they, and so now now that the, it's not as life-threatening and there, there isn't these there isn't the risk and the the daily dose heavy doses of drugs it's become it's easier to to justify the risk and you know and say yeah let's let's give it a try let, you know see if it see if it if it's something you can tolerate, and, and um, so you know, so far, I mean, and, and so that's why you've been seeing, you know, arm transplants, double hand transplants. It means moving forward really fast. No legs yet, because uh, with legs, you know, it's, you're walking on it. The, the prosthetics have come a long way, so it's still uh, a while, I think, before you'll see a whole leg transplant. But face transplants are are, are being done, and now uh, penis transplants. Um, I, yeah, I don't I don't know. I haven't followed up this week to see how that patient is doing but i haven't heard anything about uh, rejection issues or anything um so you have like you really get stuck in in the book so you you sort of you go on a submarine you see cadavers you uh like uh you follow um special you go to special ops and ask them about direct what was the most ridiculous situation from your point of view that you found yourself in researching for the book oh i think me um I, this was in the chapter about hearing loss, and I went out at Camp Pendleton. There were a group of military audiologists uh, who were trying out T-caps. The, you know, these, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the headset that enables, that cuts loud noises and amplifies the quieter ones. And so they, there was a sort of simulated tactical scenario. We were out in the field with Marine Corps Special Operations guys, and they were doing a simulated. Uh, visit to a village where things start to go kinetic and there's gunfire and things are happening and um, and then they also had us on the shooting range and shooting m16s and I've never I've never shot a handgun I've never and I've just I'm not a gun gal right and so I'm you know I'm there with this you know marine corps sniper dude who's like are you a left-handed or a right-handed shooter and I'm like I I, <laughs> I guess I don't know, probably right-handed. I, I know, guess it's the same number that I do non-shoot, same one that I do non-shooting things with. I uh... <laughs> is it different for guns? I don't know. You know, and then just you know, I'm I'm I have I'm just utterly clueless. You know, he hands me the the magazine, which you know, for me, a magazine is the Vogue or you know, last <laughs> right. week. It's not. You know, he hands me this. Which contains ammo. Like I've seen people put it in, so I'm like, yeah, I can do this. So you know, like put it, try to put the thing in, and then you know how they slap it with the heel of their hand, and it's really this macho thing. So I try to do that, and he he goes, "Um, other way, so the bullets 
or pointing forward. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I'm just such a, they have a term for it in in the military, a pogue, just a clueless outsider. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I I was amazed they just, but they do just sort of leave you to your own devices quite a lot just to wander around bases and wander around camps and and then actually put you on a submarine as well. Yes and no. You know, when I was in uh, Camp Lemonier with the special operations guys were that I mentioned earlier, the diarrhea researcher, that poor man, Captain Mark Riddle, had to be my escort every minute of the day. We would have to coordinate what time do we get up in the morning. You know, our rooms were on opposite sides of this little kind of dormitory, sort of. Uh, you know, what, what time are we going to meet out in front of the building? And then we would go to breakfast and we'd go to his office and we'd go to interview people. He was stuck with me 24, not 24, all day uh, for a week. Because I could not go unescorted anywhere on that base. Because they know that you put bullets in the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, because um, I'm the goober with the notebook <laughs> and the tape recorder. Who do, yeah, just sort of a Mr. Magoo bumbling around. So, yeah, because um, and, and there's a lot of classified material on the other side of the free zone. And I'm the kind of idiot who would just walk in. Well, I couldn't because I couldn't get the door open. But right. Um, yeah, so it was just protocol. Protocol. I had to have an escort yeah. the whole time. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the sets that they have to recreate, like a, a village in Afghanistan, for instance. And I didn't realize how elaborate those are, and how a, a movie effects guy is sort of in the business of creating these hyper realistic environments to simulate war zones. Yeah, yeah. It was. It's this huge set. It's it's near Camp Pendleton, in uh, in in San Diego. It's called Strategic Operations, and it's. It used to be an action movie. They used to film a lot of action movies and TV shows there. And at a certain point, after 9-11, when there was less of an appetite for that kind of film, the guy who runs it repurposed it to do these simulations. And they've got sound effects. They've got dust hits. So it looks like uh, the bullets are hitting the ground They've got it, or, or a wall. They've got, um, they're playing over a loudspeaker. It turns out it's, it's from... Um, that with the uh, saving private riot, you know, bullets whistling, oh. people scream agony, and then that's playing. Plus, they've got act, and they've got actors with moolah, like really very convincing um, synthetic wounds and gore. And in the and they've got uh, in, when I was there, there were two, uh, a couple of amputee actors who had this <laughs> yeah, with, and they've got a backpack with a with blood that's and a pumping system, so the blood is like spraying out of their amputee the, the stump and these poor you know these these guys were trained to be corpsmen medics you know the the navy's um the navy's uh, medics are called corpsmen mm-hmm, and right. they they deploy with the marines and they so these guys are ushered into this scene of utter chaos and screaming and bullets and this this guy who for all i mean you look at him you you really believe this guy's leg is blown off what the hell and they've got to run in and they've got to put on a tourniquet. They've got to do needle decompressions. They've got to cut airways under pressure with their trainers screaming at them. Uh, and it, and uh, it, it was fairly, it was pretty intense. It was pretty intense. I, I find that so funny. Yeah. Did they know that they were going to be using real amputee actors or was that also just part of the whole surprise for the trainees? It's part of the whole, it's part of the surprise. Uh, well, not now. Know. Thanks for ruining it. <laughs> Oh yeah, I kind of believe that. I think that they, I think other other corpsmen kind of say, you know, this is some, this is what they might do. Here's some of their. And I think they talk amongst each other, amongst themselves, and yeah. they probably talk to people who've been through it. I, I, I kind of suspect that they did 
have an inkling of it. And if not, then yes, I've blown the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the uh, yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, you you can't because you. you it's hard to imagine how intense that is when you have kind of the visuals. And there's even, you know, there's a, um, a product, there's a cut suit, which is an, a wearable patient simulator. It's this, there's some guy who puts it on and it's, it's got organs and it bleeds and you can practice procedures on it. And it's got, you know, uh, it's got an intestine and there you can act, you can put in simulated shit that you sent with this product called liquid acid so it may even smell <laughs> you know it sounds it smells it looks really real it's uh, a pretty impressive operation and the, the idea is something they call it stress inoculation where you know you if you expose yourself to it even though it's not real it's going to m- make you a little a little bit immune to it when it happens in the field you're so, going to be a, maybe a little accustomed to what uh what's to expect. So the Whether idea is not, to try and be on autopilot as much as possible rather than panic. Well, to have kind of gone through it, done what you need to do with that kind of chaos going around you, uh, hopefully it'll prepare you a little bit for what you may experience in a real situation. But, I mean, you, you can only make it so real. Nobody's actually shooting at you. Right, so right. it's, you know, whether or not – and I, don't, I didn't find a – it's hard to do a, um, a qualitative study on – how well does this? How to what extent does that prepare someone um, to to render care in the field? I right. don't know. I mean, it, it it can't hurt, and it might help. It seemed like some people were were um, some of the higher ups were concerned that so many people come back with PTSD, and they're thinking that they should be doing more, and that would stop that. But I'm not sure that would that really work. If you put someone through more trauma up front, would that prevent trauma later, or just traumatize them up front? You know, like I'm not. Well, I think that that I think that. The hyper-realistic training, I don't think that traumatizes anyone. I don't think it's so intense that you'd have PTSD from it. It's stressful. It's embarrassing to have your instructor yelling at you that you're an idiot. You know, it's, I think it's a, it's a really bad day. Yeah. It sucks. You're glad that it's over, but I don't think it causes PTSD or any lasting emotional trauma. But ultimately, no, it's a training you did mention that Dennis Kucinich, though, did a tour of uh, saw one of these cut suits in operation <laughs> and lost his lunch, though, right? Yeah, he did. He's a sensitive soul, Dennis Kucinich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cut suit. They brought the cut suit because there's an issue with um, um, the other way that that you train corpsmen and medics is to train them on. Uh, it's called live tissue training, and you use an anesthetized barnyard animal, and you have to. You know, you deal with bleeding, you deal with um, decomp- chest decompression, you know, things like that. So that is, and there are uh, understandably animal rights people who would like to see that practice discontinued. The cut suit is an alternative, and the the, um, the folks who make it have taken it to Congress as a demonst- and done demonstrations where there's some, you know, they've got somebody bleeding, and I mean, they, you know, it's it's fairly intense, especially in you know the congressional chambers. What I don't know the lunchroom, wherever they. Wherever they did the demonstration yeah. with the cuts, yeah, and um, apparently Dennis Kucinich um, couldn't hack it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I could. Yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd probably be in the same boat. I think. So I think sort of two of my favorite chapters there, back to back in the book, are both kind of more chemistry related. One related to smells and odors, and then uh, the attempt to make shark repellent, which I hadn't realized was such an ongoing and <laughs> unnecessary task. <laughs> 
it that went all it started with the OSS, the precursor to the CIA in intelligence service in the US and World War II. It started it started there. It went all go all the way through the sixties. The Office of Navy Research took it over at a certain point. Um, and event yeah, it, it it was kind of misguided from the beginning because the numbers of the, the, what happened was for the first time airmen were ditching from their planes over warm tropical waters and there was a tremendous fear of shark attack and it was blown all out of proportion it was affecting morale no one wanted to fly they're like sharks are going to get me these are which is kind of bizarre you know you're, you're you're willing to you know fly into battle have your plane shot down no problem but it's the sharks yeah. i don't want to attack my shark <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of a bizarre wartime scenario anyway uh there was an effort to come up with a shark repellent, something they could put in the life raft, you know, that would say in block letters, shark repellent, you know, and you could put that in the water <laughs> and that you would be, it was, it was to make them, it was kind of a pink pill, as they called it. It was more psychological than anything, but they did try, they tried a bunch of the, the, the folks at the OSS funded research and, and these things are like, this is the research you want to do because they're out in the tropics, they're out on that eight, one of the atolls and we talk where they tested atomic bombs. They, uh, they had sharks and they tried all manner of different substances. They didn't do it in a terribly controlled way and they, and the thing is if it works on one shark, there's no guarantee it's going to work on another. They tried noxious substances, random chemicals, uh, decaying shark flesh. That was very promising for a while. They were excited about that. Uh, and then, which turned out in some cases to attract sharks. So they were, the the research went on and on, and they and they they were testing it on you know in a tank, which is, doesn't really bear much relation to a, a deep sea um, airplane ditching scenario. So then they took it off the coast of Ecuador and they churned up the water and they tried to create a feeding frenzy. And then they threw some of this stuff in the water, did nothing. It actually some of the, I think it in, increased the, the frenzy. I mean, amongst the sharks. Uh, anyway, it went on and on. And in the end, uh, there was a guy, Captain Baldridge, who's 90 now. I spoke to him recently. And, you know, the, the, he, he said, you know, you're taking a, a substance and you're dropping it into an ocean. It's going to dilute really quickly. In, in the right. time it would take shark, you know, he actually tested this. You've got a shark swimming toward you and you put this stuff in the water. And, in fact, the shark's going to... Uh, by the time the shark gets there, it's diluted to the point where the shark can barely even, you know, I mean, notice it. It's, it's almost like repel. homeopathic shark repellent. Yes, Wait. it's home exactly. <laughs> it's homeopathic shark repellent. Yeah. Um, so they turn, it, they mostly die. They thought. Right, and even you sort of calculate it, or one, one of the scientists calculated the um, the speed at which a shark would be moving if they were attacking someone, and yeah. how doubly ineffective it would be by the time the actual the shark even senses the repellent. It's already. Yeah, yeah, and ditto for the dye. The dye would disperse. The end of the water would become more translucent, and the shark would Mm -hmm. see you. By the time it arrived, oh, there they are! Right. Uh, So yeah, yeah, and in the end, I mean, you, you, uh, the the Navy would uh, ask um, crew of various uh, ships and say, you you know, has there ever, have you ever heard of a, a situation where there's been? A crew member who's been killed by a shark, and it was, it was almost non-existent. Right. There were a couple stories that they couldn't really verify, so it's just it just wasn't happening. It was not worth all the time that it was spent on it. But it was a very entertaining file. I got the file from the OSS, the, <laughs> the archives, 
the correspondence file and I, I couldn't help myself. I had to include a chapter. Yeah, it's great because it also sort of shows the whole history of scientific research in the military. It's sort of a little microcosm of how things have developed and gone from and become more sort of peer researched and evidence based as it's gone along rather than at the beginning where it really was just, I got an idea. Let's see if this works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the Captain Baldridge was a chemist and he said, uh, he, he said, I was just appalled at the, the, these guys were biologists. So they're just like, let's try that. Throw some in the water. See what that does. Let's try this one. You know, right, that, and, 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 you know he, he came out from a whole different perspective and it just seemed just scattershot and haphazard. And, and he wasn't at all surprised that it failed. Um, and then you also talked to the um, the army's chief bio scientist. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The uh, the folks at Monell Chemical Census Center. Well, you mean the historical or the the current stuff? I was thinking the more the current stuff, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, the Pam Dalton, who's a uh, the Monell Chemical Census Center, chemical senses being smell and taste. Uh, they've done some work for the military. Uh, re- more recently in. Um, ways to detect stress in either body odor or breath. Uh, you, you'd be, you, can, you can detect uh, stress chemicals that, that the body puts out, and, and you could then use that, to, uh, use that information to monitor people in high-risk, high-stress jobs, like an air traffic controller or, or somebody, uh, um, I, I don't know, on a submarine who's got to be tracking things. and Whatever it is, you could... You could be monitoring them, and if they're getting really stressed out, you could do, I don't you could do an automatic shut off of the equipment, or you could have something that notifies their superior to take them out and put someone else in anyway. So the the military has yes lately been interested in your bo and your halitosis. <laughs> it's it's all but, so fascinating to me, and uh, your career as a writer is fascinating because you came from a psychology background. And then found yes. yourself the the go to science writer for the last uh, fifteen years or so. How did you come to find this niche? I kind of pa- randomly and passively ended up writing about science. It was uh, an editor from Discover Magazine, which is I believe still exists. Um, many back in the nineties, early nineties, uh, contacted me to, to write an, a feature for them, and uh, and that it was incredibly fun. And I did a few more. I did a bunch of stories for them that often involved traveling somewhere and meeting somebody doing something really interesting. And so I stuck with it. It was not, you know, I, I don't have my my lack of a science background is. Um, it causes me to have to scramble and, and kind of get up to speed. And I tend to use my, the people I interview as unpaid tutors. Uh, and they think, that they think that they're, you know, they're going to be talking about their research at the same level. They would discuss it with a colleague, but in fact, I'm, I'm asking them to speak to me as though I am a seventh grader that they've run into at a, a barbecue or something. Right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think I, I am a little bit annoying for the people that I spend time with, but that's the only way I can do it. And uh, so that's how it happened. I don't, I don't, you know, there are science writing programs where you need an advanced degree in science just to, to get into the program. I couldn't even, I could not get into a science writing program, <laughs> even after the number of books that I've published, but so be it. What the hell? Yeah, you do a great job of it, though. Your books are all great. Books and right. um, we we interviewed uh, Commander Chris Hadfield of the International Space Station a year or two ago. And I don't want to cause any kind of uh, rift here, but I had read your book before talking to him. So I was curious if he could comment on some of the things you'd said in there, specifically about on-ship shenanigans, things like people sneaking booze onto the International Space Station 
and he he denied it pretty vehemently. And I'm curious if no, no, uh, it was Mir. It was Mir. Oh, it was Mir. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, we need, we're gonna need to go back to him then. Yeah, okay. Maybe both. Yeah, I need to go back to him because I uh, he uh, I he was the first person I interviewed at NASA years and years ago for Discover Magazine, uh-huh. and. I, I I hate to think that he thinks I said. Oh no 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 no! It was more. It was more. I thought he was just sort of like uh, doing some CYA sort of things. Like we, you know, I thought he was sort of tacitly uh, uh, confirming it, but he had to say that it didn't happen or something. But I was, yeah, maybe it was oh, just. No no not. I don't. I don't know of it happening on the ISS. But it was. It was the. It was the Soviets. Okay, the Soviets. This is did this it. is yeah. pre space station. This is a whole generation earlier. This is um, yeah. This was it was it, well. It might have been. It was there, uh, Mir. Yeah, I think it was Mir. There was also one before that. Uh, was it Salyut? Uh, anyway, it was it was the Russians, the Soviets. Okay. Blame the Soviets. <laughs> blame the Soviets. Yeah, when in doubt, blame the Soviets. So, in writing Packing for Mars, you got to do something that we're both ridiculously jealous of, and we still hope we'll get to do someday. You got to ride on the Vomit Comet. Yeah, I did. <laughs> was it awesome? I want to go back so bad. <laughs> how long was your weightlessness? Uh, how long was the trip? Or how many or how many trips did you do well, on it? You, you, you ha- I think it was it was between twenty and thirty. I'm forgetting now. Um, parabolas, uh, so chunks of weightlessness, and you have about uh, I think it was twenty two seconds of of zero g, and mm-hmm. then there and the, and then it gradually goes to two g, which is really strange and not very pleasant. Where you're kind of you're lying down on the the plane and you're kind of pinned to the floor you can't even pick your head up so this is when when so, the parabola is uh, bottoming out when it's kind of going back around yeah. the other side of the arc yeah when it's a bit, when it's pulling up and then when you go over the top and down is when you have the weightlessness so you're, you're you have this roller coaster pattern you're tracing in the sky so it over and down you got the 20 you're floating it's it's so you're a, you're a soap bubble you have I yeah. mean, you, you weigh nothing and your organs inside you weigh nothing and everything's floating and it's unbelievably comfortable and crazy and you, you know my notebook i had my reporter's notebook and the pages were all fanned out in front of my face and just floating there uh i i really would love to do it again you guys should apply that there i went as a journalist with the student flight opportunities program which is something that happens every year if it's still going on where aerospace students at universities can um, apply they have a project they want to test say some sort of docking mechanism in zero g or Sometimes it's biology, uh, not necessarily engineering. And each team is allowed to bring a journalist. And uh, so I went along with the team as a, as a, a journalist that didn't really pay enough attention to <laughs> what my doing. Like, oh, yeah, they're, I forget doing something over there. And I'm like Superman across the... I thought at first when you said the students... I. I thought the way you were going, and immediately now having said that, I realize how stupid it is as a thought. But I thought it was like when they're training the student pilots to do the to do the flight. You know, like when you can get a cheap haircut when you're younger and you just go to the <laughs> like it's the trainee vomit comet, and you can get like a cheaper version of that flight. Yeah, because there's a ten percent chance you're going to die. Yeah, but there's an instructor next to it, so they normally recover. They normally pull it out in time. <laughs> You'll probably be okay. Yeah. The instructor corrects any of the problems. They're good. You're good. It's worth doing. It's a much cheaper haircut yeah. and a much better way to experience zero G. See, I would have done it. If they, even if that were the case, I would have done it. I think I would too. Yeah. Did you ever try, in, in Packing for Mars, you talked about the problem of nausea in space and how it's sort of unavoidable if you ever move your head too quickly in zero G. Did you try that? Yeah. Like turn side to side to see what it felt like? Oh, hell no. No. Because <laughs> I had I did not want to be sick. First of all, they give you really good drugs 
Uh-huh. They give you uh, there's an anti-nausea drug, and then they give you a dexedrine to keep you from getting too sleepy. So it's they kind of it's up or downer. Yeah, that yeah. They give you very effective, but that you're also told uh, don't move your head around it because you'd see some poor schmoes who would just get on there and immediately doing somersaults and twirling around, and then they you'd see them kind of turn white and be dragged off to the back of the plane and strapped. <laughs> So that they didn't throw up because if they throw up bubble, you know, clumps of oh god, oh god yeah, that would so floating you... around and they're coming down at t- double weight on top of you oh. in the pullout. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you yeah. have to. Did you did you do a somersault by like the last parabola? I presume you you get told when you've got no. like one or two arcs left, and then you like, all right, all right, might as well go yeah. for broke on this one. No, I did not want to do. All I wanted to do was do the Superman thing. I just wanted to fly mm-hmm. across the air and just to hover around i i did not i know the somersault thing didn't that didn't appeal to me and also because i knew that it would make me nauseous yeah yeah so i didn't do it yeah yeah you mentioned you, know, you can do it commercially if you got four thousand dollars to spare you can go on i think it's a zero g corporation or something out of las vegas does those does those flights we thought about G- doing that maybe just sort of crowdfunding it with our listeners but it seems sort of indulgent and if there's a way to do it as journalists we should try to do it that way probably <laughs> but then it but then yeah. you said it's only one journalist per project so Ugh. we'd have to we'd have to fight it's one it's one per team and there were six or seven or eight teams oh, okay. okay i was the only journalist all of these teams did not have a journalist. They, I mean, they could uh, have had a free journalist. They, they could have added another journalist to their team for free. Well, any uh, any there's only one only one team had a journalist. That was me. All the others didn't even have one. So you would have had six oh. or seven. You would have your choice of teams. Wow, uh, get on this. we could be doing this every weekend. Why are we not? <laughs> why why are we even podcasting right now when we could be floating? You need to do this. Just don't mention my name because I I kind of <laughs> got in trouble because I let go of they're supposed to hold on to a tether and, I'm, and at the last two three parabolas i'm like screw this I'm flying <laughs> so uh, don't mention my name but uh it's called the student flight opportunities and it's at nasa and it's every year every i think it's in the i forget in the summer i think okay uh, and and you go and it's like it's four it's three or four days uh so you could, i don't know why it's just training there's various trainings and it's it spans a number of days it's so fun though uh, really, really. This I can't. We we've sort of we got you on the show to talk about your new book and because uh, it's great and sort of to find out more about that. And instead, we're just hitting you up for how we can fly for free. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Well, that's as it should be. I right. mean, who, who would not want to be in? I mean, I this that's why I wrote that book. Now that's not true, but really, <laughs> it was. Uh, it's it's something I've always dreamed about doing, and it, it and it did not disappoint. It's the coolest feeling you can imagine. That's amazing. You guys need to do yeah. it. We will. We're going to we, make that promise yeah, for later. Let me know. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll come back to you if, uh, with a follow-up, which yeah, will probably just exit. The follow-up will just be like, oh, my God, it was so good. Thank you. We'll send you, we'll send you an edible arrangement. We'll send you. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Just don't do a summer. Don't do somersaults. No don't somersaults. No fast head twists. So uh, how no. do you choose the top? How did you come to choose um, military life and uh, – how do you choose your topics in general? And do you have any ideas for future books that you would love to explore? Um, I don't know what I'm doing next, actually. And and uh, I, the the ideas, you know, they're almost more just sort of general umbrella topics that I then go and sort of cherry pick the most surprising or interesting to me things. They're certainly not comprehensive at all. Uh, and military science, I was covering something in India 
the world's hottest chili pepper is there, the ghost chili pepper. And there's this really brutal chili pepper eating contest that happens and locals really do some damage to their in, insides uh, <laughs> eating 10 of these. Uh, oh, it's just brutal. Just the scene backstage. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's another topic. But but uh, I was there and I found out that the chili, this particular pepper, the, the Indian military had weaponized it. They made a non-lethal weapon, kind of mace, like a mace from this chili pepper. And I thought, whoa, I better, I got to report on that. So I went over to the neighboring state of Assam and went to this lab where they had uh, produced this uh, weaponized chili pepper. And I was just there and they were doing some other stuff. They were doing a leech repellent. They were, there was another project at another uh, branch of the Indian military. They were like, they were testing telepathy. And, I mean, there's some really out there stuff. At the, and I thought, whoa, military science, this is a very, this is a, it's kind of a Mary Roche area just in that yeah, it's yeah. satiric than you would think. It's not all, you know, guns and bombs. There's a, there's a lot of kind of surprising, weird stuff that goes on. And it just seemed to fit. Yeah, and that's where you sort of specialize. You specialize in the sort of the odd stories and the characters, the people. It's much, it's much more of a human interest yeah. story than it is a technology story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like and a lot of what the, a lot of when people cover military science, the the kind of stuff that I've covered, they tend to focus on technology. Then there's a lot of high tech stuff. I mean, you you look if you look on Wired.com or uh, they do a really good job of covering all the latest technology. Like here's a, a textile with a photovoltaic panel built in, so you could charge things while you're wearing your uniform. And here's a tent that inflates itself. And here's a you know that that stuff's cool, but it's not kind of my bailiwick. Yeah, you know? well, we love hearing about that. But also, we what's really interesting to hear about is the strange path that people took to get to that point where you've got the working thing, like the failures and the the why they needed it in the first place and then the sort of odd and sometimes terrible choices that people made along the way before they landed on this uh precisely including uh i was one of the things i learned um some of the decision making that's happened in the military over the years including a camouflage uh kit for the navy which (laughs) you pointed out served to no purpose other than to make people who've fallen overboard impossible to find (laughs) possible to see yeah, yeah. Uh, right there's a the the navy working uniform is a is a it's blue yep and it's but a camouflage print so, which doesn't it doesn't you don't need if you're in the navy to blend in with the ocean if you fall overboard so it's it's just <laughs> that, that um camouf- camouflage became so popular both in the military and among civilians that there was a there, there were folks in the in the navy like why can't we wear camouflage too we want to wear camouflage so the the, the kind of day to day outfit is I, yeah is a blue camo yeah I mean I get it you know everyone else gets to look sort of cool and camouflage and you're still dressed like Donald Duck and it's like <laughs> exactly yeah you don't want to, you can't begrudge them their camo <laughs> except for its utterly lack of purpose yes except for that yeah. Well, I, I feel like we shouldn't we shouldn't keep you much longer because you've already been so generous with your time. But so fun, I you know, I, it, it's this is one of the first conversations I've had at, at any more you know at length, and it's been really fun to to talk to you guys. So oh, well, thanks. Th- so thanks. Yeah, thanks well, thank you so much, us. and thank you for the heads up about NASA. We were a hundred percent following this one up. Oh yeah, just go online student flight opportunities program and and let me know when you get it because i'm gonna be really excited for you I and you're gonna will. be you can go online you can see pictures of me floating around on that that site oh and, excellent uh, i will 
you up and see you floating around and throwing up if you end up throwing up. I'm gonna say don't the, listen. I'm gonna save the somersault attempt for the last go. I don't I, like if if I'm still not sick on the last go, I'm gonna give a somersault a go if this happens. Oh, have it your way. <laughs> <laughs> And listeners, we want to remind our listeners, the book comes out next month. It's called Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. It is uh, already available for pre-order. We'll put the link up on our website. Yep. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, the official pub date is June 7, but it's you can pre-order now. Yeah. And we can't recommend it highly enough. It's a great book, as are all of Mary Roach's. You should check out all of them. So thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks, you guys, so much. Thank you. Thanks. Take, take care. care. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. So that was Mary Roach. And uh, that was great. I, she's awesome. The book's great. It's nice to have someone on the show where you can sort of unconditionally and wholeheartedly recommend. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think any of her books would be uh, anything but page turn. <laughs> Why do I do double negatives? None of these books would not be None good. Of these books would not have. <laughs> hang on a second. Is, is he insulting her or not? How many? An odd or an even number? I can't not unrecommend this lowly enough. <laughs> um, no, she's a great writer. All of her writing is is very in depth but approachable, and the topics are always really interesting. So yeah, check I, out all of I've, her work blew through this book i plowed through it and it's it's great we have a few people to thank we have some donors to thank some people we missed out because of the so the great lost episode yeah after 208 episodes for one to be lost i think is a pretty good ratio um and it it won't happen again so thanks again for bearing with us and for donating people including james cox Lindsay eiserman peter long david worths justin broad destruction lane um, Paul Freeland and Caroline Laco all set up monthly donations, which we greatly appreciate. We don't not appreciate them. And you can do that by visiting probablyscience.com and clicking on donate. And that's also where you can find the Amazon link, which you should use before doing any shopping on Amazon because it costs you nothing and it gives us some money back for freezies. Yeah. Why not, uh, for example, use that Amazon link to buy the new book by Mary Roach? Yes. Get your own copy of Grunt via our Amazon link. We are going to be at Bridgetown. Yes, we are. We're going to be performing on, uh, I believe, Sunday, June 5th at Doug Fur Lounge as part of the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. And you can't buy individual tickets in advance, but you can buy a festival pass or just pay admission as you enter. And um, there's so many other great uh, shows that happen at that festival. Also, visit BridgetownComedy.com to check those out. We just added some performers, including Kyle Mooney from SNL and uh, Moshe Kasher, Jonah Ray, the band The Thermals are going to play, Amy Mann, Ted Leo. Roderick on the Lion is going to be there, one of my favorite podcasts. Tons of good stuff. So um, visit BridgetownComedy.com for all that info. It's June 1st through 5th up in Portland. So go and do that. Uh, also, if you're going to be in Greece for some weird reason, maybe because you're Greek, which would then not be a weird reason to be in Greece, come and see me at uh, Thessaloniki and Athens on consecutive days in the middle of June. Uh, and then also I'm at Glastonbury doing many shows there. And uh, I've hopefully got some other UK shows around that. I will tweet them when I have them. Uh, so please go to those. Please also follow us at Probably Science. You can email us probablyscience at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to probablyscience.com for both the donation button and the PayPal link um, and also the Amazon link. And also spread the word. Write nice things about it on iTunes. Uh, subscribe if you're not already subscribing. Tell your friends. All of that stuff really helps us, and we hugely appreciate it. So thank you very much, everyone who does those things. Uh, you can follow us individually at Matt Kirshen, at Andy T. Wood, and at Jesse Case. Also listen to Jesse vs. Cancer. Uh, it is fantastic. Um, that's everything, I think. Yeah, thanks so much. We'll see you next week, and hopefully we'll see a bunch of you live and in person June 5th at Bridgetown. Yeah, we're gonna. there's going to be a, like a tiny, maybe like a little bit more of a gap before the next episode, just because Andy goes off to Bridgetown... 
We might get one out before then. We'll see. But, if uh, we can. But Andy's not. off to Bridgetown to start actually running a massive festival uh, all by himself. With many, all many other me. people I do everything myself. <laughs> not a person helps. He does all the shows as well. It's weird because there's people on the website listed, but Andy actually does all of the performances. Those are just people that inspired me. Right. Yeah, so you, you do different... I do impressions of other comics for in their five style. days. Mm-hmm. Really good. Some of them some of them may be problematic. <laughs> problematic at, at best, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but seriously, it's a great festival. We have 130 comedians over five days. And if you are in anywhere in the, in the Pacific Northwest and looking for something to do, it's well worth your time. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see a bunch of you there. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. Bye.